This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Let's go back in time to 1932 as Converse brings you historic footage of the legendary original Celtics with whom all great professional teams are compared. We have now taken over your radio. Richie Guerin is about to show you the most important step in getting past a man. It's the first one. And Oscar will inbound it. The men in green, the Milwaukee Bucks, that's Al Cinder against Bellamy. It has Jordan. Allen shakes three, gets two! Gilmore. to go in the first quarter for the Cow Palace. Here's Barry. Jordan. Open. Chicago with the lead. All right, welcome to another edition of the Over and Back NBA podcast. I'm Rich Craig alongside Jason Mann. Jason, you're a little under the weather, so I'm going to handle the intro for this guy, but this is a very special edition. You're probably wondering why we're back on so quickly after, you know, sort of sitting we're going to do it once every few weeks. Well, it's because a very important news happened, and we, we sort of broke it uh, in our preview podcast, and that was the retirement, or not the retirement, well, the, what is likely the impending retirement of Steve Nash. Obviously, he's out for the year now. Um, Looks like it'll probably be the end for Steve Nash. If he comes back, we're all going to look like idiots. But either way, we're going to go with it anyway. Um, we, we talked a little bit about Steve Nash, but I don't think we did it a proper our proper due. I mean, we, we needed to give him the, the, the whole thing, the whole spiel, the over and back treatment, as I say. But Jason, before we get into that, how are you doing? I'm great, man. Um, I thanks for taking care of the intro. I appreciate that. <laughs> I uh, I have my sexy voice tonight, which is appropriate. You're gonna sound like it, between you and I, it's gonna be hard to tell the difference. Yeah, us, so. you know, appropriate for Steve Nash, who I I don't know was Steve Nash the sexiest player in NBA history. I mean, he got a Spice Girl, so that's pretty that, good. That's pretty good. Yeah, I, I don't know. <laughs> Some of the haircuts maybe were you well, know, th- th- didn't didn't help him out, but. But yeah, um, I, I'm excited to uh, talk, and, and we have we we got some of the podium game family here joining we us. We do. It's a little it's a roundtable here. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna do a little roundtable session, um, and then get into sort of what we normally do our career path stuff. But let's introduce our special guests here. We have Jordan White and Brian Giverman, both of the podium game and the hardwood paroxysm family. Uh, Brian he writes for the Bright Side of the Sun as well, the SB Nation Phoenix Suns block. And Jordan, you know Jordan. For God's sake, if you're on the podium game, you know Jordan, right? Come on. How you guys doing? doing? Doing good. Thanks, guys, for uh, coming on and uh, talking with us about um, about Steve Nash. I guess first, like, um, if um, we'll just talk a little bit, maybe about like our um, favorite uh, Steve Nash uh, memories. Uh, Jordan, do you want to go first? Yeah, actually, Steve Nash was actually the one who like got me into. NBA basketball in the first place. Um, I remember I picked up an ESPN the magazine uh, with Nash on the cover. He was laying on a bunch of basketballs, um, and the like. Uh, the title was something like "Fun is Back in the NBA" or something like that. And so I just read all about seven seconds or less, and so I was like, okay, well, I guess I should, you know, 
check out check this out and as soon as I saw the first game of like those Phoenix Suns I was hooked um, it's funny because with a lot of players and mo- most players like they play within limitations because their limitations of the game there are only so many ways you can make a shot so many dunks you can do etc cetera, etc cetera. but Nash always kind of seemed to ignore that and make passes that didn't make sense or kind of defied logic but at the same time always hit their mark um, no one else like it's Nash is a player you should never ever want you should want to emulate him but you should never try to because more than likely your pass is going to be a turnover with Nash it's just he had that uncanny ability to see impossible angles and make the pass from just like weird contorts of his body um, and he was just he was absolutely amazing to watch and how about you Brian I'll, I'll be honest, when Nash won those two MVPs, I was one of the people who was like, uh, he, I don't know if he really deserves it. The one year I kind of thought Kobe should have won when he carried that Smush Parker team to the playoffs. And then as the sun started to get worse and after 10-11 when they lost to Mari, and then they went 40-42 and 42, but had a chance to make the playoffs that last month of the season. I think they were like four games over going into the final into the final month. And then the strike shortened year, they went 33 and 33 and basically played a play-in game with the Utah Jazz for a playoff spot. The second to last game of the season is when I really truly gained an appreciation of how good he was because those teams really lacked a lot of talent and he put them on his back and kept them respectable. And it was really amazing to see. What about you, Rich? Yeah, for me, it, it sort of works in two ways. It, uh, similar to a lot of guys and similar to Jordan, I, I maybe have jumped in a little bit earlier is so, you know, I was a huge big basketball fan, you know, growing up in Chicago, but it wasn't really an appreciation of the game. And I mentioned this in our preview that it really was the, that Dallas Mavericks team, the, the Steve Nash and Dirk, that really made me turn me back into like a, re, a real fan is what I would say, you know, in 98. And I, you know, I, I'm just kind of cheering on because, you know, the Bulls are good and all that sort of stuff. But and I'm pretty young as well. But I started getting in old enough and I started playing the game a lot more. And I saw Nash and I saw Dirk and it was just like, I mean, this was just, especially when you, when you sort of, as Jordan said, it was just, what he did was just, it was just amazing stuff. It was high octane basketball. It was crazy. It was, you know, I, I talked about on the, the preview as well is that, you know, I would, I would stay up late on, on school nights watching the Dallas Mavericks because I couldn't fall asleep because they were going to score 120 points or whatever. So I, that, that, it was that team really that, that was a big part of mine. I'm still a Dallas Mavericks fan to this day. I'm still a Dirk fan to this day. And, and, and Nash played a huge part in that as well. Uh, then he goes to Phoenix and then it's just sort of this, you just see a changing of the game and, and just a whole different attitude to the game, a whole different approach to the game. And, and just so many memories for me of, of, of being in high school, being in college and all that stuff. And those late Thursday TNT Western conference games. And a lot of them had Nash in them and you just never knew what to expect. It was just always high acting. It was always, you know, go, go, go. And there was success involved in it too. And it was always this sort of fun thing of, okay, look, can this, this sort of game be successful? And then people saying, well, you have to slow down, come playoff time. And then, you know, them getting a few games away from the finals and stuff. And it was always kind of a fun thing. And then obviously seven seconds or less, we talked about, you know, last week as well. It was one of my favorite basketball books ever. And, and one that I read and, and, and reread still to this day and just an amazing, yeah. I mean, his, there's so many memories. It's hard to pick out just one, just an overall, idea of, of me and my my true sort of growing up as a basketball fan a lot of it was watching steve nash 
Yeah, and, and for me, you know, I, I kind of think of like the 05-06 season, this, the second season with him in Phoenix, and they lost Amari for basically the entire season, but they were still able to be 54-28. and 28. They made the Western Conference Finals, uh, you know, and basically they had, you know, they still had Nash and they had Marion, but they lost Joe Johnson, but they added Boris Diaw, who did nothing in um, Atlanta, who I, I watched the year before in the 2004-2005 Hawks, I always like to mention, um, do absolutely <laughs> nothing. And, uh, you know, they had Roger Bell, James Jones, Kurt Thomas, Tim Thomas, you know, some good players and some decent role players, but taking that team to... 50, you know, to, to that record and then making it that far. They even fell behind 3-1 to the Lakers in the first round, but rallied. I mean, they just had some um, incredible games that season. And it, it was kind of the same for me where, you know, you saw like, hey, they're going to be the late game on TNT and you're just really excited to see them because, um, you know, they're – they're just so fun to watch and so terrific. And I just think that year was really, you know, the second MVP year, which even though like in on an individual statistical level, maybe didn't really necessarily merit that MVP, but just being able to keep that team in such a strong position, even though they had um, lost so much, I think really was just um, pretty incredible. So, um, you know, what, maybe talking a little bit about like Nash's influence on the NBA and what made him special. What are, what are kind of um, your guys's uh, thoughts on that? Uh, Brian, maybe you can go first this time. He start. I mean, as I think a lot, a lot of people would probably agree with this. I mean, their style of basketball that happened when him and D'Antoni came together was the perfect match. And it's the most fun style of basketball to watch play. Like defense is really important and it's a very big part of how to construct the team. But the way those Suns teams played was just beautiful to see on a night in and night out basis. And those matchups, when you had the Mavs, the Suns, the Kings were kind of at the very end there. They kind of transitioned from the Kings to the Suns as the fun team to watch. Those Western Conference times were some of my most fun I've had watching basketball. Jordan? Um, a few things. It was the pro dribble, most of all. I mean, where he'd go from one side, usually like just a little bit beyond the elbow, go behind the basket, looking for any avenue, any angle to pass, and then pop right back out on the other side. Neither, he'd either, because he inverted the entire field, basically, or the entire court, his, his vision. And so he either have someone open on the wing because, like, you're not supposed to do that. You're not supposed to go under the basket and keep your dribble alive. No one expects you to keep your dribble alive there. So you either have an open shooter somewhere or if they finally learn how to, like, how the, if the defense would cover the shooters, then he could just kind of turn around real quick and plop that easy jumper. Um, and then I think he's maybe the most underappreciated shooter in league history mm -hmm. because he was always, he was a reluctant shooter. Like he liked getting guys involved more, but he's just such a prolific shooter. His percentages were absolutely incredible. Um, so those are the, those are the two things that really stand out for me. I mean, I know the shooting thing isn't necessarily an, an impact, uh, but it's something I think that's not talked about enough. And then the probe dribble. I mean, you talk to any player, I asked uh, Dragic about this last year. Uh, Cause I noticed he was doing it. I was like, did you learn that from Nash? He's like, yeah, of course, Steve taught it to me. And you know, 
it's one of my favorite things to do. So like, and you see other players, Mike Conley does it. Chris Paul does it. Tony Parker does it. There's so many players that use that probe dribble now. Can I add something to his shooting thing? One of the most underappreciated parts of Nash in within that realm is how incredible he was finishing close to the basket. Someone Mm -hmm. his size, how he could move his body and shoot with both hands and the floaters from even a little bit farther out probably doesn't get talked about enough as part of how his game was able to work. One of the most like enduring memories for me with uh, Nash, it was in, I don't know, it was one of their playoff series with the Mavericks. And again, Nash did that probe thing um, and he came out just to like maybe the block and Dirk's defending him and Dirk kind of thinks that he's going to pass, but instead he doesn't, he flips the ball over like his head. He's still, he's still facing away from the basket, but he flips it behind his back and it goes in for layup. Like as if that was like exactly what he planned to do. And it was as, it's like as easy as him as breathing, but anybody else who had tried to attempt that, it would have just been stupid. What about you, Rich? Uh, for me, there's a, there's a, a few things that really, I mean, you, you look at the pace of the game and obviously the, the Suns and D'Antonio, they weren't the first guys to have, you know, a very high pace, you know, that we, we saw obviously with the Lakers, you know, the, the decade prior were, were, you know, a very quick paced team. The Bulls, even in the early nineties were quick paced, but I think more than anything, it, the Suns and, and a little bit of Dallas and a little bit, um, you know, of, of, you know, Brian mentioned that the Kings as well of, of a team that, you had some teams that were, were playing at a quicker pace and they were the one that really truly had prolonged success that it was sort of starting to scare the NBA and not, maybe not scare the NBA in general, but scared sort of the narrative of you need to slow down to win in the playoffs because there was the times when the Suns were winning even in the playoffs and they were getting deep playoff runs and there were certain things that sort of happened and other more than anything. And you can look at sort of the pace increase in the NBA as, you know, pr- you know, what was happening before the Suns really had their success and what happened afterwards. It might be, I, you know, I don't want to attribute all of it to them, but I think there is something significant in there of them sort of getting us out of what I would consider the dark ages, the early, you know, two thousands where, where it was, it was, you know, defense wins championships, slow it down and slow. I mean, we had the, the Spurs, the, the Pistons, those sort of teams that were very slow, very methodical. And the Suns come out here and they just explode the whole thing. And now we're seeing that now, it's a lot of winning teams. That's how they play. I mean, they play that way. And I don't know, I'm I'm not going to necessarily attribute that to the Suns, but I think in a way though, it helped sort of get the NBA out of those dark ages. And you saw this and you saw a fun, exciting, and also successful brand of basketball coming out of that very quick pace. Yeah. um, There was a a good um, Eric Kareen at the national post had a good, um, he said saying that Nash's first year in Phoenix, the Suns used an average of 9.86 possessions of the game per game, which was the quickest pace in the uh, league. Um, And then last season, the Spurs used an average of nine, 97.1 possessions, which was, I believe 12th in the league. So Mm -hmm. they're, they're, um, they're playing almost as fast as the Suns did, you know, in, Oh four, Oh five. And, but are now, you know, close to the middle of the pack of the league. I think that's just, um, uh, you know, demonstrating what you're talking about with just, you know, the, the pace getting quicker. And I, I definitely think the Spurs, I mean, even, um, even Popovich has talked about, um, you know, the, using some of the principles from the seven seconds or less sons and obviously Nash, you know, being the most important player in that. And I think the other thing about Nash and you guys kind of definitely touched on it, but I just think just watching him, the way he's able to put things through tight spaces, whether it's those, just those, you know, precision passes or whether it's, you know, being able to kind of dribble around, circle around and just, you know, get like a quick scoop or layup in. 
um, you know, that kind of thing, just being able to make something out of just a very, very, very tiny hole is just, you know, really impressive. And just to be able to do that commonly and just, you know, to, to do it like a behind the back pass because it's the ruthlessly efficient thing to do as opposed to being like a show off thing to do is just, um, you know, made him special and, uh, neat. Um, you know, particularly you, Brian, I know obviously being in Phoenix for, uh, for, for a long time, but any of you guys, this applies to, are there any, um, you know, personal interactions with Nash or anything, you know, kind of, a, a, along those lines, uh, any, anything interesting that you can share? You know, I don't have anything specific because I wasn't in the locker room on a regular basis, like a beat writer, but he was always insightful and he was always a good person to go to for a quote. He was honest. He was open about things with the team. You could talk to him about anything you wanted. And he was always very good in dealing with the media. He was a very easy person to deal with. Never had an issue whatsoever. All right. Um, so, uh, you know, obviously he and Dirk emerged as superstars in Dallas and they had um, made a run to the Western Conference Finals in 03. Do we think that team sort of now gets overlooked because of Nash's success in, in Phoenix? Jordan, do you want to answer first? I, I think so. I think they get a little bit overlooked, but I think it was also the reason they, they get overlooked is also because it wasn't necessarily a sustained thing. Um, I mean, you talked about that was their emergence, but then it kind of took the both of them to go their separate ways, or at least, you know, Dirk staying and uh, Nash going to Phoenix for them to really have like a sustained greatness. Um, and I think they could still could have done that in Dallas, but it just so happens that they didn't. Um, but yeah, that team does get, uh, it doesn't get talked about as much as it should, but also because I think there's not as much else around it. Like Don Nelson always played fast. That was always his style. Whereas, you know, seven seconds or less, that was, you don't have that catchy name to it and D'Antoni and all that. There was a lot more just to it there. Yeah. Um, they had a book written about them too. That right, yeah, that helps. That helps. <laughs> uh, I also think it, it, one other reason it gets overlooked is because Nash's hair was just, <laughs> I think there's like the less said about it, the better. And so that kind of cuts in there. You're like, maybe, maybe we shouldn't go there. Yeah. The, the hair, the long <laughs> stringy hair in the early Phoenix years wasn't great either though. They, no, no, At least it wasn't bleached. Yeah, yeah that's, that's true. That's true. <laughs> well, what's funny about that team, though, and I think it's, it's Jordan's point a little bit, I think it's because that next year they so imploded, and that was the year where, you know, they got they got Jameson, they got Walker, and then that team went from – it just went manic, too. Like, they were had the – like, I think I don't know if they were the worst defense, but I know they went to, like – from that previous the, the year where you're talking about where they went to the Western Conference Finals, I think they were a top ten, you know, obviously a top ten offense, and I believe a top ten defense. And then next year they were number one offense, but like a, a bottom three defense or something. And the team was just a train wreck. And and I think that really hurts it a little bit, is because it, as Jordan said, it wasn't a prolonged thing. It was sort of it felt like a one lucky year blip. And then yeah, it, what 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 didn't help is that when they both went their separate ways, there was both a lot more tremendous, you know, individual and team level success. So we sort of just assumed that that was just kind of a blip. And yeah, they got lucky or something like that, which I don't know if it's necessarily fair, but I think it's it sort of that's how the narrative kind of plays out. And, and Dallas winning the title, going on to win without him, using the replacement pieces they did kind of hurts how that Nash-Dirk team gets looked mm-hmm. at. Yeah, definitely. Um, so do we think, you know, uh, there's always sort of the talk about 
how Phoenix, you know, definitely could or would or would have likely won a title with better luck or, you know, it was their defense always going to be a fatal flaw. Plus, you know, of course, the tough competition they had with the Spurs, Mavs and Lakers. Brian, do you want to go first? I'd say this. They look, they got unlucky that Robert Sarver isn't the owner he is now that he was. Yeah, let me say that they got unlucky that Robert Sarver isn't like he is now at the beginning when he first purchased the team because now they value draft picks. They've built depth on the roster. He's willing to put money into it that he wasn't willing to do at the beginning, whether it be keeping Joe Johnson around, selling the draft picks, and he catches a lot of heat mm-hmm. for that stuff what he did at the beginning and it's not necessarily a fair criticism anymore. And if he operated how he has the past four or five years, the Suns very well could have ended up winning a title. All right. Well, uh, then, you know, in his time in LA, do we think it could have worked with Nash, Howard, Kobe and Gasol in LA, or was that always doomed to fail? Let's say Nash is healthy that whole year. Um, the, the, the first year with Howard, do we think that that was, there's any way that could have worked if it had been handled better or was that always um, doomed to fail? Jordan, do you want to go first? Um, I think it would have been better. I don't think it would have worked as a lot of people thought it would for one Howard wasn't, Dwight Howard that year. Uh, He still hadn't fully recovered from his back. You could see it in the way he moved. He got a little bit better as the season went on, especially towards the last month, month and a half of the season. But, I mean, he just wasn't who he used to be. Um, And then you wouldn't have had good perimeter defense. Like, as Nash's defense does get, I think it gets bashed a little bit more than it should. Um... And Kobe wasn't isn't also isn't the defender that he used to be, and so those two together on the perimeter that wouldn't have worked out well. Um, I really would have liked to have seen it though, like obviously for a full season's worth, if nothing else, just for the passing. I mean, between he and Kobe and Gasol, there would have been some really nice passes, uh, probably a lot of nice give and goes. Um, but also, I just don't think it would have worked because Nash required a lot of maintenance. And the Lakers don't exactly have the best track record of keeping guys healthy. So it's almost kind of doomed before it started. Any, th- any thoughts on that, Brian? They, they won 48 games that, one, that first year. I think we kind of forget about that, that it wasn't as bad as it was made out to be, but they just didn't live up to the expectations of what – was brought on to them when the group was put together. Uh, I don't think with once how we saw they were, I don't think they would have won an NBA title or anything like that, but I think they could have been a pretty solid basketball team that could have won 50 games. if Nash would have had some injury, had some better injury luck. And maybe Dwight was a little if Dwight took a little bit more time coming back and was healthier than rushing back to try and make everyone else happy. Yeah, my, I just don't know if I, I'm, I'm sort of with Jordan in the same respect that I just don't know if it ever would have totally worked for a lot of different reasons. And, and, and I think that a lot of them were non-basketball reasons as well. I just don't know if the attitudes in there were really going to work out. I just don't know if a Dwight Howard, Kobe Bryant relationship, even if they were winning and even if they're, I, I just don't know if that was ever going to 
be you know what i mean i just don't know if dwight howard was ever going to be able to be okay and and really fit in with that culture that that kobe sort of created and that the lakers created i just i just don't know and nash is the same way as well i, I think not to say that he's sort of a disruption in in, in but it just I, I just don't the attitudes there was just too much there to make it really work in my opinion but i mean like brian said though they they, they weren't as awful as we like to kind of think but yeah i just i i think come playoff time something would have happened or would have blown up or I, I i don't know but i just i don't see it working yeah i mean maybe if you got phil jackson in there you kind of could have gotten everybody to buy in but you know definitely ha- finding the right place for Gasol to play was kind of a getting Gasol and Howard to be able to kind of play together, you know, um, was a difficulty, particularly with Gasol declining a bit. And then just having Kobe and Nash play together with Nash being so used to playing, you know, with, with the ball and that adjustment, you know, so I definitely, it seemed like just with the talent there and, the idea of it just seemed like it's it so could have worked and then you know yeah and you're right it wasn't exactly a disaster but it was just such a you know it it just fell so below what was expected it just kind of feels like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyone else have any thoughts on uh you know anyone any more thoughts on Nash or anything related to his career I I was upset I wanted to just see I talked about this when we did the Pacific Division uh, preview podcast with Dubin. We just, I, I just wanted to see a couple vintage Nash games this year. It was something I was really hoping to see. And in what otherwise could be uh, just watching Kobe chuck up 40 shots a game, it would have been a nice storyline to follow with the Lakers as we're forced to watch them 18 million times on national. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's a bummer. It's, it's always, it's a bummer for somebody not to be able to go out on their own terms, especially someone, you know, who has great, great a career as Nash and, uh, you know, it brought so much joy. I mean, it really made the game more fun. Um, and I, you know, not just, it, it, you know, obviously the things that he did and the games that he had and getting, you know, his teammates involved, you know, like, whether he made them better or not, he, I think he made them more fun. He made his teams more fun and eventually kind of made help make the league more fun. And that's a pretty awesome legacy to have. There are so many players who, who owe their contracts to Steve Nash, especially shooters. Oh yeah. Yeah. No, totally. Yeah. No, that, I think that's an important thing. Yeah. I, it, you know, Jason, you said that. I, I don't know if he necessarily made them better. I would make the argument. Yeah. I, I think he absolutely made a number of guys better just by I mean it could have been a little bit of the offense but we've sort of seen even I mean even when D'Antoni was gone it was still there were still guys that were playing above I mean Nash I think as a as a true point guard and I I don't know if there's a great way to quantify this I don't know if anybody has done a, a decent amount of research on this but I mean just looking at him and and what he could do to his team I think yeah I'm, I'm much more than that I think a lot of guys should give uh, a Steve Nash a nice little Christmas card because I think they uh they owe a lot Tim, I think Joe Johnson as well. I think he's absolutely one of them. Tim Thomas had no business getting a contract. <laughs> that never happened. Let's, that never happened. We're not going to talk about that. that Man, but that Tim, Tim Thomas, Thomas did. No, it never happened. Tim Thomas did seem like an awesome player that year. Like that seemed, I mean, you knew it wasn't real, but it felt like real. Or it just, it felt so magical that, you know, <laughs> but yeah, definitely. That that three he hit the game winning three against the Clippers. I forget which yep. game in the playoffs it was, but yeah, like Tim freaking Thomas. Did. <laughs> <laughs>
the, the best part about that too, I remember, it, it's because the Bulls kind of gave him away, and that was like a thing where Scott Skiles was just like, "No, nah, I don't want this guy." <laughs> like, and everybody was like, "Yeah, he sucks, whatever." And then you're just watching him just dominate the playoffs and just die, and you're just like, "Oh God!" Like this would have been really nice, nice to have, but it, it was all a mirage, so it's okay. Yeah. We can all uh, we can all rest easy. Yeah. All right, guys. Well, uh, thank you so much for uh, joining us and having a little roundtable chat with uh, uh, about Steve Nash. Um, is there anything either you guys want to plug? Uh, no, everything's uh, just go to the podium game where you click to listen to this. All the stuff will be up there to watch, to listen to, not watch and other stuff. There's some watch. There's some watch. Yeah, yeah. There is, I realized that as I. I tried. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. Well, thanks a lot. Thanks. See you, Rich. See you, Jason. Thank you. They have that down so beautifully. Nash will penetrate, and Stoudemire will cut right off him. It's almost like a quarterback with a handoff to a running back. They run that play beautifully. Stoudemire a screen. Shot clock at five. Hill a screen. Nash. Stoudemire, what a pass! gets it inside that's why he's a two-time mvp all right we're back and uh, rich and i are going to kind of go through some of the highlights of uh steve nash's career uh he grew up in victoria british columbia in canada his father john played professional soccer in uh, england and south africa and steve was born there in 1974 uh, so he's South African. Well, you know, he's Canadian, born in South Africa, and his parents were born in London. So he definitely has a, a international flavor for sure. Uh, and spent most of his life, of course, in the United States, or, or I guess most of his life now. Yeah, because he's yeah. been there since 18. So when he's he's 41, so or almost 41, I think. But anyway, um, he didn't really compete in organized basketball until the eighth grade. Uh, the only university to offer him a scholarship was Santa Clara, and the uh, Santa Clara's c- coach, uh, when recruiting him, uh, had this quote of, I'll offer you a full ride, but I've got to tell you that you're the worst defensive player I've ever seen. <laughs> so, you know, he was I- impressive. Um, it, you know, he had the skills that he had today, obviously, at a different level as far as passing, court vision, shooting, so forth. But uh, <laughs> I guess the, the, it never got better, the defense, really. you know, was uh, – uh, was there and um, his uh, college highlight um, was that uh, Santa Clara upset uh, number two Arizona in the first round of the NCAA tournament uh, in 93 when Nash was a freshman and he made six straight free throws in the final 31 seconds to ice that game away uh, and uh, ne- the next season Santa Clara was in the top 25 for the first time and they beat Michigan State and UCLA and several other you know top programs so he he you know he put them on the map uh, I think they made two other tournaments as mm-hmm. well so um, he obviously got some attention uh, because of that, some national attention, even though they weren't on television very much. Um, I, I guess unless they were playing large programs. <laughs> Arizona, yeah. Right, but... <laughs> what was uh, I, I watched that game, or I was watching highlights from that game, and it's pretty interesting that, you know, it's still his freshman year when that's going on, and, and, and even the announcers are mentioning, wow, this guy is pretty good. How did he slip through the cracks? And there's, there's a big discussion going on about, look, you know, this recruiting and college recruiting is such a big deal. And, you know, you have scouts everywhere and everybody's watching every game and everything. And, and even then, I mean, this is still, obviously, I think it's even more advanced now. I mean, obviously it is with the internet and, and just the ability to watch, you know, people can send you tapes or YouTube videos or all that sort of stuff. So really nobody's a mystery, but still there, there, there's like a 10 minute conversation in this game about how the hell did this guy 
only get one offer? How did he slip through the cracks so much? Because they could tell even then as that freshman year, what, a, you know, what sort of a talent he had. And it's fun watching that. Cause you can see, you know, he's not nearly as refined as obviously he'd become, but you can sort of see, I mean, it, it, it's Steve Nash. It's, it's what you'd expect to see out of him. And it's just amazing that, that nobody else, you know, really wanted him or, or really. And even after that first year, it wasn't like there was a bunch of transfer offers that came to him or whatever. It was just kind of, yeah, he was just there and it was just kind of Steve. Nash. And, and you look at him and it's like, yeah, this is kind of just what he was always the rest of his life. And it worked. Right. I mean, it's just a good free throw shooter, a good shooter and a good passer that, you know, was leading his team to success. It, it never changed. Yeah. Apparently the, you know, he, there were offers and he, in that uh, for transferring after he was a sophomore and he's like, well, I want to stay with my team like that. Oh, okay. I, I okay. I, That's who, who did, did they say? Who? I don't remember specifically, but you know, like, he, you know, apparently the idea was thrown out there. I don't know if he seriously considered it or not, but um, but it was definitely something. You know, people at least were were um, okay. Well, that's that's good at least. Yeah, that, but but because st- that'd be ridiculous if you saw that and was just like, eh, I'll yeah, yeah, whatever. You know, like, so it, yeah, uh, yeah. I, I didn't I didn't know this, but Kurt Rambis also went to Santa Clara. Did he really? Yeah. Oh, okay, I did not know that. Either. Yeah, he, the, they Where are the only two NBA players to play Santa Clara, but that's, that's <laughs> pretty good, you know. Um, Kurt Rambis obviously now is good. Steve Nash, but he, you know, he, he had some highlights as a player for sure. Um, so uh, yeah, yeah, one thing you know, just kind of that that'll be a theme throughout, I think, uh, or you know, of a lot of the stories that I you know I read about Nash. Um, I read probably about thirty stories, honestly, about uh, Nash to, in in preparation for this uh, podcast. Humble brag. Um, <laughs> that uh, one thing is the importance of team, like what being a what being a team actually means, like. Um, caring about his teammates or wanting to understand his teammates on a level beyond basketball. Um, and, and just, so I think um, like, and caring about the team more than just like as a winning or losing thing, you know, I, I think some of those right. concepts are really important to him. And I, you know, the fact that he wouldn't transfer from college, even though it could have been his advantage to do so is, you know, I think an illustration of that. Yeah. And we'll talk a little bit later, but I mean, reading the articles about when, it, you know, when he's leaving Dallas, it's like the big, I mean, he, he doesn't want to do it. It's like a thing where, where, you know, it wasn't like, yeah, here's the money. Cool. I'm out. It was just like, look guys, like they're giving me this much money. I can't really like not take it. And, and you could tell there was sort of a, in all the quotes and all the stories that there was just still a, no, you know, I don't want to leave. I want to, you know, do this with Dirk. You know, I want and me and him are, you know, real good friends or it, it's just a genuine guy. And that's everything that you hear about him from people that covered him. And, and, and we talked, you know, Brian mentioned when he sort of had interactions with him and, and everybody I've heard that's ever talked to the guy just said that just a very honest down to earth guy, a guy that you really, just being in the room with for a little bit, you felt like you, you knew him on a personal level and he wasn't, uh, and, and you hear that from friends too. And anybody that knew him, that people just really generally enjoyed, you know, his company and he was just a good guy. So that's, and you sort of see that early, you you see that early and you see it from the early stories. And it's, it's, it's one reason why I think we're on this podcast now talking about him because he was a guy that was just so likable. Yeah. And I think good guy is a way to, a better way to put it rather than nice guy, because I think like, yeah, no, he was brutally honest to some people. Right, yeah, I heard, he yeah, so. really, you know, I, I think some people who are close to him and really like him say, well, you know, sometimes he could be kind of a dick, but, but, you know, but they all still you know, like love him and, and, and think he's great. It's just, yeah, he does have that. There's that honesty and there's that directness and there's, you know, um, no BS as well. I think that's, uh, you know, kind of part of him is, you know, for sure. Um, 
So he was drafted uh, 15th in the 96 drafts, obviously one of the great drafts of all time with um, uh, I- I- Iverson, Ray Allen, Kobe, Marcus Camby, Stefan Marbury, Antoine Walker, Pedro Stojakovic, uh, Jermaine O'Neal, uh, Zydrunas Ogaskis and others. You know, a lot of guys who had you know long NBA careers. Um, and apparently that pick was booed by fans who were assembled at America West Arena. Um, and uh, they apparently booed Danny Ainge, who was the coach, or I guess he wasn't quite the coach of the team, but he was, you know, with the team. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, and then he was, and I guess Donnie Nelson, Don Nelson's son, who later became the Phoenix, uh, or excuse me, the Dallas general manager, um, made the decision to pick him. He was, a, he'd been a fan of his for quite a while. So yeah, you, you read a lot about him, and he's he's actually a guy that that I'd love to sort of maybe in another podcast we talk about him. Really responsible for a lot of the international players that came through Dallas, and 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 some guys just generally came through the NBA. He was really kind of an underrated guy for you know being that was sort of his job was to be you know the <laughs> international sort of scout in a way when he was kind of you know cutting his teeth for the Mavericks, and it's it's awesome to see the guys he was able to bring in. Yeah, well, I mean the fact that he was able to. Uh, have the first uh, Canadian superstar and first European superstar NBA players in one team is, uh, yeah. you know, is... And don't forget about Wang ZZ. <laughs> no. Wang Juju. I think it wasn't Wang Juju. I don't remember how to do it, but yeah. he. Yeah, I don't remember that. I think he was slightly before my time. I remember him in a video game, but I don't oh, remember he, <laughs> seeing he, him. Um, I, I, he was ironically fun. Like, he wasn't good, but in video games, he was awesome. Yeah. Like, he was an unstoppable force, and like, I think it was NBA 2K3, I believe, I played with him. I I, I could drop like 40 with him, because he was just like so much taller than everybody. Like, him and Sean Bradley were just like an unbeatable team of like rebounding and dominance, but... Uh, and, and Real life imitated art in that sense because they were an un- obviously an unstoppable force that that changed the game of the NBA for uh, obviously I, the player <laughs> that I was trying to think of was oh uh, it was Pavel something oh, oh Pavel the, the big Pol- the big like Pol- seven Pol- foot yeah, uh, like seven five. Yeah, he was like seven five, seven six. Yeah, it was so he just couldn't move right. at all. But, but, yeah, I remember they got him. I was like, Ooh, but he was here we really go. good in NBA two K five or NBA Live oh five. I think uh-huh. whatever game that was like one of the first basketball video games like I got back into after I got into basketball and he was like a guy who was like he was a rookie and he was rated highly enough that you could kind of like have him as like you know a good contributor yeah. I think he could shoot threes too so yeah <laughs> so uh, it was not very it's always, it's always fun that with the video game players and the uh yeah you know, and, and I wasn't quite sophisticated I mean obviously I knew there was a difference between a video game player and a real life player but I wasn't like quite sophisticated enough to like understand how vast that difference was yet so uh, so, so it was interesting. Like, why isn't he any good? I don't understand. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it was amazing when I saw Gerald Green actually play basketball. And after my years of dominance in NBA two <laughs> K with him, it's because because that guy he could shoot threes and just dunk. He just jump over like five people at a time. And you're like, this guy's awesome. And then like, oh, never mind. He's not very good. Okay. No. Well, and now he's okay. But he, right. he he's turned himself into an okay NBA. Good. Yeah. But it took yeah it took about eight years prior to his NBA two K dominance to really actually be a good player. So. Yeah. Exactly. So. That'll be another podcast we'll do is guys that are way better video game <laughs> players than in real life. So that'll be my my I'll just shine in that one. Yeah, for our sure, research so. will be to play lots of video games. So <laughs> that'll that'll be tough. Um so 
his rookie year of 96-97, he only played 648 minutes. They were a 40-42 and 42 team, but they actually started out 0-8. Um, uh, Co- Co- uh, Convict Simmons was coach for the 0-8 start, and they were coached by Danny Ainge. And uh, he wasn't really going to get much time there because he played behind Kevin Johnson, um, and Jason Kidd was traded to the Suns that year, and uh, Sam Cassell was also on the Suns that year. Although I don't know if he really played because Cassell didn't play much either. Um, he only played 539 minutes, although he, I think he might have been traded. Yeah, he was. He was. Um, he was traded from Houston to Dallas. That um, was he part of the Jason Kidd trade? Um, yeah, let me see. No, I thought. No, yeah, no, I don't think he was, but he was involved in something there. Let's see. Oh dear God, it's a giant. Uh, no, okay, here we go. Um, uh, traded by the Suns with oh, Finley and AC before, Green. Okay, he was traded. That was '96. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Oh no. So he's traded from the Rockets for Chucky Brown, Mark Bryant, and Robert Ory to the Suns for Charles Barkley. Okay, so he was the Barkley. Oh, trade. and okay, and then he was. Yes, he was traded with yeah. Michael Finley, AC Green mm-hmm. for JC. So he was in. He was for. Yeah. So he was in that okay, one. Okay. Yes. yes, he was. So. And then traded by the Mavericks then for Sean Bradley and Ed O'Bannon, Robert Pack, and that whole – that eventually got to the Nets. And then, yeah, just, I, I never realized that he bounced around as much as he did in that early era because I just kind of remember like I know the Rockets era and then I know like the Timberwolves era and then I know the rest of his career. But I always forget that he bounced around as much as he did. Yeah. He played Fibers with the Bucks. I didn't realize that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, right. The Bucks. Yeah, duh. Yeah. <laughs> right. um, so um, anyway, um, so – wasn't getting much uh, in that situation, but he did play. Um, he he did uh, improve in ninety six ninety eight. Played uh, sixteen hundred minutes and um, had you know most of his numbers go up. Um, you know, kind of finally got a role in which he could sort of prove himself and demonstrate that you know he was a a pretty good player. I mean, um, but then he. Then basically, uh, Dallas was interested in him, um, and uh, and the um, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, on Donnie Nelson's recommendation, he was traded tra- mm-hmm. to Mavs. Uh, he actually debuted at the same press conference as Dirk, who had just been drafted, of course, by the Bucks and then traded to Dallas. So, which is one of the greatest NBA pictures of all time. Yes, is. is- is Dirk and his like horrible comb over like like his mom like did his hair. There's like a perfect part in the middle, and it's like kind of bleached blonde, but kind of black. And then Steve Nash has like you know he had bleached blonde hair, and the the, yeah. the 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 brown was starting to grow in, but it was like this weird mop of like what the hell? You just got like a yucking up like Don Nelson in the middle. Of it. He, yeah, just, like, he looks like a member of NSYNC. Uh, yeah, right. Yeah. yeah, like they had the frosted tips or whatever. Yeah, and that's when the Mavericks had their like old terrible like their weird logo with like the cowboy hat or whatever it's just so ridiculous it's just like unbelievable especially when you when you see what they sort of became and then they followed up was that picture with uh mark cuban and, uh, and nash and dirk where they're all wearing cowboy hats yes. and like jumping on each other it's just like yeah. unbridled happiness between like two young like it's just so weird yeah and they became fast friends um and of course you know great pick and roll force eventually on the court um and um in 99 you know both were kind of an initial disappointment especially nash um he was hurt didn't didn't play very much and he fans you know were uh booing him for missed shots every time he touched the ball i mean he shot um uh 36% from the field and had a true shooting percentage of uh, 0.471 so those are of course really bad numbers but that was kind of when he started developing his serious back issues 
Um, and so just, you know, I think injuries are pretty much the explanation for that. Um, the, um, the second season in Dallas was it was definitely an improvement. He still had his struggles, but um, but they um, you know at least were starting to show some progress. Uh, they were forty and forty two, which was um, they didn't quite make the playoffs, but that was like the first decent record Dallas had had in quite a long time. Oh yeah, yeah that that was like a, a revelation because that's I mean this is a team that you know it's throughout the nineties was they were winning seven games and see, you know, like yeah. just God awful, awful yeah, off I mean, season. So 40 wins must, might as well have been, you know, let's a ticker tape parade worthy and, for them. And over like the last 19 games of the season, he like was playing cause he only played 56 games that mm-hmm. year, only 27 starts, but he um, started to play full minutes and started to kind of show like, Oh, okay. You know? And one of the things that uh, you know, there's an SI story on, it was a, written later as the Mavericks began to emerge, but um, one of them was just like he and Don Nelson clashed over the fact that Nash wanted to pass so much and was watching to shoot. Yeah. Um, which, you know, makes sense in a way because, of course, Nash is such a great shooter, but maybe doesn't show quite the understanding of how special Nash would be as a passer as well, you know? I mean, I could... Yeah, no, go ahead. You, you read those quotes, yeah, and it, it, it's funny because it's, it's Nelson... I think he point blank says, look, I, I appreciate the passing, but I need at least 15 points per game from you. You know, I, I you're a good shooter. Use that ability. And it's sort of, you know, again, like we talked with Nash, it was, he's so selfless. It was like, well, no, I want like everybody else to get involved. And it took Don Nelson being like, no, seriously, dude, like yeah. I need you to score for me because you're extremely talented at it. And, we, and as he got more comfortable in that role, you know, we saw the, the next progression of the Mavericks and the progression of Nash's career as well. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and and finally in the one season, um, it was his first se- season playing over 2000 minutes. They finished 53 and 29, um, beat the Jazz in the first round in five games and fell to the Spurs in five in the uh, second round. That was um you know, not not the title Spurs team, but a strong Spurs team. You know, obviously Tim Duncan Spurs. Um, and one of, uh, I guess that was the first of many times uh, Steve Nash and Dirk would fall to the uh, Spurs in the uh, playoffs. <laughs> yeah. um, that year, they were uh, fourth in offensive rating, but near the bottom of the league in uh, defensive rating, which would mm-hmm. be a theme pretty much for the Mavericks. Um, he played 70 games that year, and oddly, I, and may, maybe this isn't that unique, but there were four players, Michael Finley, Dirk, Howard Isley, and Sean Bradley, who all played 82 games that year for the Mavs. So one of those names is not like the other. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And that's Sean Bradley playing 82 games is ridiculous. Yeah. That uh, I, I can't fathom a situation where Sean, or why you would play Sean Bradley in every single game and not just give him like a few games off. But I guess maybe, maybe we know now why he, uh, was, was, was dust didn't after last too much longer. Yeah. Then. Yeah. Right. Um, but Donnie ball, <laughs> Donnie, don't, don't question Don Nelson. No, right? I wouldn't, I wouldn't dare to question Don Nelson. He, he played, he did play, uh, four more seasons after that. Most, mostly yeah. full seasons. Um, Yeah. Uh, we'll talk about that when we do our Sean Bradley podcast. <laughs> right, yeah, uh, the, the imminent Sean Bradley podcast. And this was around the time that SI feature was written. There was also one that mentioned that Nash uh, liked to date the celebs, uh, Jerry Hallowell and of the Spice Girls and Elizabeth Hurley, who apparently hit. good finds. Those are yeah. so, early 2000s. Those are the, the pretty, pretty peak early 2000s babes. I mean, yeah, I guess the hair was working. <laughs> yeah, here we are laughing at the, the frosted tips. Yeah. Well, he showed up. He sure showed he us. He's got up. those. Uh, Got the British chicks. That's, that's right. Yeah. 
Um, so, you know, it's a pretty similar story for the Mavs in the next season. They're first in offensive rating, 25th in defensive rating, uh, 57 and 25. They fall in the second round again, this time to the Kings. Um, and, uh, and that was a year the, the Kings were really strong. That was, mm-hmm. uh, I think they were the number one seed that year. Um, uh, yeah, I believe so. Yeah, that is, um, I, let me confirm. Yeah, they're 61 and 21. Yeah, they were the first. Yeah, yeah. they were, they were number so, one. So, um, and uh, Nash plays 82 games and is an all-star for the first time. So um, definitely, definitely moving. I think that Dirk was an all-star for the first time that year as well. Um, so it took, you know, the, an extra year of recognition for them to uh, to get there. But they definitely were that way. And then in 0203, that, that was their that was the peak of that, you know, four year maps, Dirk Nash and Michael Finley run where um, they were really good. They finished 60 and 22. They were first in offensive rating, ninth in defensive rating. They had a, a, a tough road in the playoffs. They beat the uh, the Blazers and Kings both took them to uh, seven games. Um, but they um, uh, they were able to win those series, and then they um, and then they fell to the Spurs in six games. And this was the year the Spurs won the uh, the championship, their second championship. Yes. Nash was again an All Star. So um, so you know ninth and D, they were definitely were at the um, you know at at a good point there where it was like okay, well maybe this is actually gonna kind of work, but. And they kind of made the bizarre move of adding um, Anton Jameson and Antoine Walker. Um, uh, you know, you, you kind of get sort of the idea of just on paper that adds more talent, but that definitely where they, um, you know, they they lost uh, they lost Nick Van Exel, who was kind of important to them off the bench. Mm-hmm. Um, they lost uh, Rafe LaFrance, who yeah, you know, good defensive guy. Yeah, yeah um, you, you know, who got sort of an insane contract, but definitely like it was. Oh yeah, <laughs> kind of we, weird chemistry thing, I guess. You know, um, and they didn't. And they obviously didn't have much defense because the next year they fell to twenty uh, sixth in the league. Yeah, and uh, we're still first in offensive rating, despite John Schumann had an interesting stat where uh, he talked about um, uh, they had the number one offense that year, even with Antoine Walker shooting 27 percent from three point range, <laughs> 305 attempts. Uh, yes, and then he I, said, I remember it well. Yes, he said he, in fact, when you compare to the team's offensive efficiency with the league average, that Mavs team had the number one offense of the last 37 years. Which was basically since '77, which was when turnovers yeah. were first tracked. So that's pretty impressive, d- d- despite having those uh, those flaws. But again, they took a step back and they lost in the first <laughs> round in five games to the Kings. What's funny? Another sort of tidbit about that Antoine Walker year is you look at his uh, his total turnovers per game. Uh, so Steve Nash had 2.7 turnovers per game, and that, that's a, a theme of. I mean, obviously he's a point guard. That's that's doing risky passes stuff. You sort of understand you're going to get turnovers because you get a bunch of assists out of there. Antoine Walker had 2.5 turnovers per game in that same year. Like that, he had the amount of turnovers a point guard who's known for turnovers has. Like, yeah. just unbelievably Antoine Walker that entire year. Just, just so Antoine that year. Like that was that was unglued Antoine Walker. Yeah. And, oh, hey, 2405 Hawks legend Antoine Walker. Oh God. And and one thing that's also fun to note is, and as you were kind of going through these these seasons, I was sort of looking at at, at you know offensive rating, defensive rating, and then pace. Um, one thing that's interesting to note is the year that they um, 
the year they got to the Western Conference Finals, uh, they were ninth in pace. And every previous year, they were either in the top five. They were usually hovered around fourth. This particular year, where they went down to 26th in off, uh, defensive rating, rather, uh, they were second in the league in pace. So it, it almost seemed as the quicker they played, the worse they were at a lot of the facets of the game. But then this year, it just went overboard. It was just like, let's just score as much as humanly possible, run as quick as possible. Anton Walker's going to shoot as quick as possible. And it just it, it, it imploded. It didn't work. And really, was, we're not a contender at any point during the year, really. I mean, they dropped to the Kings real quick and, and lost, you know, what, what was it, you know, eight games off their record from last year. So. Yeah, definitely. Um, I, you know, I would say, you know, we talked a little bit about it, of course, in the round table, but just the idea that, yeah, this, I, I, I do think, you know, that this is four years of, of, you know, 50 plus win teams that, and not really talked about that much. I mean, you know, obviously the rise of Dirk, the Nash and Dirk's friendship is, you know, is talked about a little bit and, you know, maybe a little bit of the what if, you know, Nash had stayed and what Dirk and Nash could achieve together. Although obviously they achieved so much, you know, not together, you know, it enabled Nash to be in basically the perfect system for him and Dirk mm-hmm. to emerge as a leader and, and for the Mavs to be able to fully build, you know, teams around him. Um, and, and that was reading through some of these articles too. There, there's quotes uh, of guys, uh, you know, I think Michael Finley in, in particular, that's saying that the big problem with those Mavericks team is they didn't have what they considered a, a leader. And it, you know, Finley wasn't saying that he was, and he said Nash really kind of wasn't. And Dirk, they kind of all looked to Dirk to sort of, you know, get to that level. And Dirk never really did when he had Nash because he always sort of had. There was always the, the, you know, the three-headed monster, you know, when they brought in the other guys, it was the four, you know, four or five deep or whatever, but it it wasn't at any point, and, and you watch those, and it really ever wasn't Dirk's team in a lot of ways, it was just sort of this collection of talent, whereas in later years, and especially when, you know, the Mavericks won their title, Dirk was like, okay, you know, this is, yeah, I, I get it, I'm the guy, I need to be the man, and, and, and obviously you know, stats backed it up and, and success backed it up. But it is very interesting at that point. It almost took Nash leaving for him to sort of go, okay, look, I need to, you know, I need to be the guy here. Yeah. And um, yeah, I, mean, I think Nash kind of was a safety valve for him. And, and that also kind of reflects in their friendship because, you know, Dirk didn't speak much English when he first was gone. He was kind of a nervous, um, shy person, you know, and, and Nash kind of took him under his wing and, and helped him sort of develop as a, you know, to a new place and a new mm-hmm. job and not that you know Nash was still pretty young and still figuring it out in some ways too but at least he was comfortable in his own skin and um you know comfortable with the league and in in the world um where that seemed you know like a tougher adjustment for Dirk so I can see that also being the same way on the uh, basketball court as well yeah, certainly. Yeah. So, you know, of course, um, you know, the big free agency in, in, in 2004, Nash wants to come back, but he gets the huge offer from Phoenix and uh, Phoenix uh, and Dallas just, you know, at this point, Nash is, you know, older. I think he's 29 or so um, at this point. So um, and has the health I- history and, you know, they um, decide, no, we're not going to, you know, we're not going to match the contract you know it's just it's too long too many years for us to too much money and it's, it's funny because it was like a i think it was like a six-year contract where it began at 8.7 million and ended at 13.1 million you know mm-hmm. i mean uh just funny now given you know the the salaries that are in the nba just like you know i mean it wasn't that long ago and obviously just the the structure was different but um and you know, honestly, the safe bet would be would be 
betting that Steve Nash would not be an awesome player at age, you know, 37, 38. But right. And, and that's that I think that's kind of interesting is, is in doing the research for this and, and, and sort of looking back, you sort of forget that that, you know, it probably shouldn't have worked out as well as it did. I mean, in most cases, signing a 29 year old with chronic back issues that, you know, was was playing in a in, in a system that that was very quick paced and and it might have made him look better than he really was. I mean I get I get the justification I don't know I don't remember reading you know articles or whatever that we're talking about you know this isn't you know the, the, they're nuts for signing him to this contract or whatever but you can totally see how if it if it imploded and didn't really work well where people would have said well duh I mean he's 29 years old and the, you know his backs you know if he if he had the issues he had with the Lakers or whatever and it happened earlier. It seemed like it, in hindsight, we're sort of like, wow, I mean, that was an awesome deal for them. But I wonder what would have changed, you know, if he if he didn't have, uh, you know, nearly as much success. But luckily, we don't have to do that because he had tremendous amount of success. Yeah, so. and Ned Tony even says something along those same lines. I think it was like in an article in uh, Phoenix Republic about, you know, that kind of like looking back on Nash's career um, you know, when he left Phoenix looking back in his time. It's, you know, it's like, you know, yeah, this could have blown up in our face. I mean, we, we thought he'd be good and, you know, we didn't have any idea he'd be two-time MVP, but, you know, just one of those things that could work out as well basically as it possibly could. I guess uh, shy of an NBA Finals and a championship, mm-hmm. you know, um, it worked out as well as it could. So um, we're going – I think we're just going to take a little break and uh, come on back and talk about the uh, rest of Steve Nash's career. Yeah, tell me it's never ended, but now it's time to go. It's plain and simple because they came in like Guantanamo. So you either swim or sing, lifeguard safe like a bright guard. Sounds super soft when you write hard. I seem bashful, even though my glass flows straight to the point. Man, I got that Steve Nash flow. I said, I listen, they right to wash the pain away. Front seat tripping out, feel like I'm a train a day. You're like a rookie dog telling me to cook them all. Hit me with the show. I tell Evan to cook them all. All right, and we're back here now talking about the next step of Steve Nash's career, and obviously the step that I think most uh, is most synonymous with his career, and, and and what we most sort of remember, and that's his you know run with the Phoenix Suns and a very famous team, the Seven Seconds or Less Phoenix Suns, coached by Dan Tony. You know Nash is a multiple time MVP, a big part of our, our roundtable at the top of the show. Jason, before we kind of get into the breakdown, what what what, what were your memories of this team? Because you talked about it on on last week's podcast, this was a big reason why you you know became a, a fan again of the NBA. Well, um, you know, I, one just a, a game that I I went to was the uh, was the Hawks versus the. Um, versus the Suns, it was uh, actually day of the Super Bowl. So it was a like an after Sunday afternoon game, mm-hmm. um, early afternoon game. And um, I'd have to think I, it was probably it would either it was probably the 07 season because um, 06 Amari didn't play. And there was just a um, there was like a, a dunk duel between Josh Smith and Amare and and Josh got Amare, you know, like pretty good, like, you know, right in his face kind of dunk. And then like a, a few plays later, Amare just kind of came back and just totally stuffed it on Josh and Josh went down <laughs> and the crowd went nuts because Atlanta like is usually, you know, as much of a road crowd as, as a home crowd. And uh, I don't know exactly how much the how like i think the suns are are were more like appreciated by basketball nerds and big basketball fans rather than even casual fans which is even though even they were so exciting like for instance nash was never like my understanding is he was like never like a top 10 jersey sales uh, like even mm-hmm. during the the peak of of 7 seconds left which seems kind of crazy to me but um 
but but the, but even so, the Hawks were you know or Atlanta just um, you know I mean I, I it was just I think maybe just because of the insanity of the play. I mean there was plenty of times where the the Hawks were cheered too, which is like one of those like oh my gosh like further things like I like I, you know it was fun to watch Nash. I don't really like remember anything specific he did um, in that game, but you know obviously it was just a treat to watch you know them work because they were so fun. Even though I was rooting for the Hawks to win that game and, and was feeling kind of bad when um, Amari did that to Josh, but. Um, that was before the the jump shots just got too much for me with John. <laughs> right, that was when he was still everybody still liked. Yeah, him. exactly. Uh, <laughs> that's kind of a weird thing in retrospect, but yeah, um, I, I don't know. I mean, I remember, yeah, there's just so many. I don't know. I mean, they said they had a lot of cool playoff series. Um, I mean, they were just like I said, like we've said the the Thursday night TNT game. They were, you know, if you if you saw them play just about anybody, it was going to be fun. Yeah, certainly, and and you know, you mentioned going live to a show, and I, I remember or a, a game rather, and I, I actually went to a game, and I, I I said show there because it really almost was that way, and that's kind of what I was going to say is I went to a Bulls Suns game around that time as well, and it was like half the crowd just couldn't help. I mean, it was it wasn't so much that they were just a likable team, but it was like they were putting on a show, like you were watching, you were literally watching a video game there, and you couldn't help but cheer sometimes when there would be just that perfect Amari and Nash pick and roll or like the perfect, you know, he'd, he'd put it between someone's legs or he'd, he'd go behind the back. Like you couldn't help, but just like cheer him on and watch. And, and you had to watch every move too. You couldn't leave at any point because something was going to, I mean, I always, I, I remember that game that I, 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 I was waiting in line for something. I was getting popcorn or something like that. And I was watching the TV and he just did like two straight plays that were just like, they weren't like super spectacular, but they were, you know, some weird behind the back thing or some, one of his weird. I mean, he, every game was just filled with these weird passes. It was like, man, I just, I just missed an opportunity to see that. And, and it became such a thing that when I would just watch him, it was just like, you had to watch every second because you just never knew when it was going to happen. It wasn't like his highlights were so subtle. They were so quick. They just kind of happened in the flow of the game that, that, if you weren't paying attention, you'd miss them. And they might not have shown, you know, 15 different replays, especially if, as you mentioned, if you were sort of a basketball nerd, there was little stuff that might not have shown up in, in a replay and not been the most spectacular thing, but just little things that he would do to set up guys and set up open shots and, and, and you know, work the ball around and, and get defenders to look the other way. It was just remarkable what he was able to do with the ball. Absolutely. So, um, so oh four oh five, the Suns went from 29 wins to 62 wins. Um, for the third best turnaround in NBA history, at least at the time, I, I don't. Um, it might have been beaten by the uh, by the uh, the Celtics um, uh, in the 0708 Celtics, and maybe I don't know if anybody else has beaten that, but uh, still very impressive. <laughs> Uh, they averaged 55 wins over six seasons, um, and uh, the first year they were first in offensive rating, 17th in defensive rating, and pretty much remained around those levels for the entire Suns tenure. I think the best they did was 13th in defensive rating. So, but they were always uh, pretty much during the um, years in which they were, you know, a playoff threat, and, and you know, at their best, they were always sort of more in the middle of the league. You know, the idea that they were a bad defense, I think, has been debunked in most. Most, you know, circles at least of you know educated NBA fans, but you know, like I said, they were more middling than bad. Um, and uh, you know, the combined with you know Sean Marion, Amari Stoudemire, that year they had Joe Johnson and Quinton Richardson and Landro Barbosa. I think was a was a rookie or second year player, and of course, D'Antoni's coach, as you mentioned, that you know that that was the original team. Those are really the you know major contributors that year. They weren't you know there weren't a uh, 
that was really a, a pretty thin team. And, and uh, yeah, uh, honestly, Barbosa and Stephen Hunter were, you know, both around a thousand minutes. <laughs> Everyone else was around like between 2,500 and 3,000. Joe, Joe Johnson had 3,200 minutes that year. So, yeah. Um, yeah, that was one thing about um, Dan Tony for pretty much the entire time, you know, that he um, was coached. They really, you know, uh, you know, he had very short rotations. Yeah, and, and that's I think that's one of the interesting parts about looking at that team and, and, and historically how people rank them. I mean, those teams really I mean, there, there were good guys at the top, but I think more than anything, when you look at it, and I think the year that we're going to talk about in a little bit uh, where, you know, Amari is out and they just insert Boris Diaw and, and don't miss a beat and actually are in better team, you know, offensively and a better team defensively just speaks to how and D'Antoni's gotten a bad rap uh, as of late and, and you know his most recent runs have obviously not been good. And people sort of, as you said, people, ah, he doesn't play any defense and it's just a gimmick and all that stuff. But I think it really, really people do a disservice to themselves. They don't really look back at these teams and look at what they were able to do, you know, with, with this talent. Cause there's not a ton of time. I mean, Jake Voschkel is like a rotation player and like, Casey Jacobson and and you know I mean there's like these guys that are just they're not good <laughs> at all yeah. and like they there's five or six guys that are, are are good on that team but that's that's it I mean it's not a a, a very deep team yeah I, you know I was thinking like you know Jim Jackson got 42 minutes in playoff games in um for that <laughs> after you know jo- Joe Johnson went down with the I'm trying to remember when that injury actually happened um yeah when did that happen, did that happen in him? the Dallas series or did that happen beforehand I don't recall. I know. Yeah, when did that happen? Let me let me look it up real quick so we can. Uh, oh, okay. It, it happened in the here. Dallas series because he plays a full game one, um, and then game two, he he plays as well because he has the face he, mask. He at only some plays twenty one minutes in game in game two, and then I guess he's I guess he's out after that, or maybe he played a little. Uh, it looks like he's out after that. I don't know if he came back at all later in the series, but or later in the playoffs. But I, I, I'm trying—I don't remember the specifics there. But yeah, I mean, they were—you um, know—they won that—they um, won that Dallas series against a—you know—a really good Dallas team who I think won—you know—they won 58 games that year. Um, you know, they were fourth in the league in offense and ninth in defense. Um, you know, really bounce back and the Suns were able to win in that second round playoff series, um, you know, basically with Steve Nash going crazy. I mean, yeah. one game they actually the Suns actually lost um, Nash scored 48 points, which I think is a career high for him. Um, and he also had, you know, he had a game where he had 27.17 assists um, and uh, game five he had um, – which I he had 34 points, 13 rebounds, 12 assists, um, and in the uh, the closing game of the series, he had 39 points, uh, 12 assists, <laughs> nine rebounds. So Marion had 38 points and 16 rebounds too. Uh, obviously, you know, and Amari was there too. But um, yeah, I mean, that's pretty amazing that they were able to, um, uh, you know, lose Joe Johnson and just have such a thin, mm-hmm. you know. And that's I mean, and, and that's that's sort of a, a, a trend with a lot of these that they would have these big injuries or, or they would lose. I mean, we're talking about in free agency, the, the guys they sort of lost and how, you know, Brian mentioned that that Sarver was just letting guys go. And it, it just even with all that, they still were just having unbelievable success. And it's it, it's it's crazy how how successful these teams were 
under the circumstances and, and all that sort of stuff. And I, I just don't know if they ever get their credit, really. Yeah. Um, I mean, they just don't have that champ or even like a finals appearance, really, you know, mm-hmm. which is I, I think this is a disappointing thing. I mean, if they just made a finals, I think that would have maybe changed, you know, what they were thought of, you know, a little bit. Um, and, you know, probably 05 or 07 were kind of their best chance for that i mean um oh six they were you know they just didn't have amari for the you know the whole season and right still won 54 games but um you know and we talked about that during the uh, the round table but um going back to oh five um yeah they fell in the conference finals to the spurs in five then uh but nash did win his first mvp and i i thought this was neat i think from one of jack mccallum's stories he got a congratulator congratulatory phone call from 1957 MVP Bob Cousy and then also one from Kevin Garnett who had won the year before who and Nash says you welcome me to the club which you know which is fun I'd love to hear that I'd love to hear that conversation between Ke- I I can't imagine any scenario where Kevin Garnett and Steve Nash like talked to you know <laughs> well, what I mean like yeah I don't know yeah Kevin Garnett just has this like he just seems like such a scary guy I mean maybe he's like like a, he would just scream at him and like Nash would just like kind of hang up I mean he, like, <laughs> Garnett's probably like nice to talk to and probably oh, I'm sure know, yeah but it just but you just, he just frightens yeah me. he frightens the hell out of me yeah so. <laughs> you just can't separate him from his game persona for like you know like bear term but um and then you know he won. Of course, the next year they they he wins the MVP again. They um they end up making the Western Conference Finals again. Lose to Dallas in six games. You know, now, um, that was the year. It, or Dallas had another strong year that year. That that, that wasn't the sixty-seven win year because of mm-hmm. course they lost in the playoffs in the sixty-seven win year. But um, oh, uh, and then in oh seven um. Amare's back, and they win 61 games. They're first in offense and 13th in defense. Um, and weirdly, they started 1-5 that year, but they had like a 15-game winning streak and a 17-game winning streak. Yeah, I think I, from what I remember, and, and I could be completely wrong, and maybe some of that knows a little bit more, is that there was a little bit of like an awkwardness when Amari came back, and there was like questions of, oh, are they better without Amari? And then once he really got his footing under him, it was like, oh, never mind, okay, never mind, they're pretty damn good. Because like, yeah. it, it was like they were trying to integrate him into the offense quickly, and it was like, eh, I don't know, like it'd be better with just Dia, or, you know, it'd be better. And then, like, yeah, quickly then, it was like, okay, never mind, Amari Stoudemire is very, very good. Yeah. And then that that was a fun team as well. That That's that's when they started getting a little bit deeper in the sense that they had, you know, guys like a James Jones or a Raja Bell and and a few other guys that were good at threes. Um, Kurt Thomas came in as a pretty good defender, and he he was seen as a, a bit of a cog as well to sort of help their defense in, in some respects. But yeah, that I would say was probably their best team overall. And maybe not the most fun of their team, but definitely I think one of the their, their better all, all around teams. That that one more than any probably should have won it. Yeah, well, I mean they had, they had just better depth. That I mean they they went eight deep, you know, with pretty good players, um, and. Um, you know, they had, they had Diao and Stoudemire in the front court. I mean, they were still undersized, but they just, you know, they had everything else, but they were able to, and Anchor Thomas, you know, they, yeah. so um, they were able to kind of play their style. You know, they were a better defensive team. Um, yeah, that was weird because the, that year was also the year that, as I mentioned, Dallas won 67 games, but they like started like 0-3 or something, you know? Like, that, weird that both mm-hmm. those teams, probably I would imagine the two best records in the league that year had just such weird starts. 
It's also the, the year where like no, just... like almost nobody won 50-50 games out east. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. And, oh god, yes. Yeah, I remember that. I'd love to read the newspaper headlines after like a week in like Phoenix and Dallas, where they're like, yeah, fire this guy, trade this guy, Dirk sucks, like Nash, like just to see that, and they ended up both having an incredible years. But yeah, exactly. Well, maybe uh, less so Dallas. Yeah, well, that, yeah, yeah, exactly. We don't want to talk about no. That, that's, that's that's a different podcast. That's our Avery Johnson podcast. No, I I, I will not be there for that. One. I don't want to talk about <laughs> Avery Johnson. <laughs> Uh, and they had a couple of really memorable regular season games. I mean, one of my favorite games I've ever watched was the two overtime game duel with Jason Kidd uh, against New Jersey. That was uh, 161 to 157. I, I somehow thought it was a three overtime game, I guess, because of the score. But it was actually the score would game. indicate yeah. that it is indeed a three overtime game. But no, it was somehow some way. Yes. Yeah. Ridiculous. Like 161 points in two overtime. That's yeah, that, that, that has to rank pretty highly in the highest scoring games ever. Uh, yeah, and, oh, it's got it. Yeah, I don't, I, I don't I mean, have that in front of me. But. Let's see. I'll, uh, I'll look it up right now. This is always good for pie. Okay, it's fourth. And tied okay. fourth um, with 318. The record's 370, though. So um, that, that uh, Pistons-Nuggets uh, game. So Mikey Moore had 14. Yeah, although that might have been a career. The, uh, the, the other 318, the one that's tied with was was just a was not an overtime game. So, well, is, is that one of those Nuggets? Yeah, freak shows 80, of the 80s. That's an 84 yeah. Nuggets one. Yeah, the, uh, the one that's slightly ahead of it, 320, is a 1990 Nuggets Warriors game. So, mm-hmm. it, well, isn't it Nuggets Pistons? One of them. That's the that's the 370. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And then Spurs Bucks is the is number two at 337. That's the um. So yeah, the the those eighty Spurs and uh, Nuggets, you know, <laughs> have those. But yeah, that's just sort of an incredible random one. I mean, there's there's no other one anywhere, you know, anywhere near the two thousands. So what's um, fun about this game too? Uh, the, the the double overtime game is uh, Steve Nash has thirteen assists, but he doesn't have the team high. Boris Diaw has fourteen. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Uh, there's just that's great. Yeah, they, I think he had forty two points in that game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then Jason Kidd had a good game. He had 14 rebounds, 14 assists, <laughs> and 38 points. Yeah, so. and Nash hit a three-pointer to tie in regulation, too. Yeah, right. So, um, so, and then there's another one that was kind of like – it was sort of billed as like deciding the MVP race between Dirk and, uh, and Nash. Because, honestly, Nash – probably was better in 07 than he was in 06 or 05 mm-hmm. you know i mean he, he's just you know i mean that that that's a um a, you know obviously high standard but um but they ended up of course giving uh dirk the mvp but then um dallas or uh, excuse me uh, the suns came back from like a you know like a 15 plus fourth quarter deficit and ended up winning at 129 127 in overtime and Dirk ended up being MVP anyway, but it's just kind of another, like, you know, they, they had some real fun games that season and, oh, yeah. and, and throughout their run, of course. But And um, they ended up beating the Lakers in the first round with Nash having a pretty awesome game three in particular. Um, and then f- they fell to the Spurs in six in the second round. This is, of course, the famous hip check from Robert mm-hmm. Ori that sent Nash to the scorer's table and blended him up. And then Amari and Boris ended up... Um, having suspensions that caught, you know, that, uh, cost they weren't allowed to play in game six and the Spurs ended up winning that, that game. And this probably was the best chance for the Suns to mm-hmm. make the finals, although they still had a long way to go, but they were going to destroy Utah in the, uh, in the final round. Oh God. Uh, yes, and yes. then probably, you know, 
against they would have faced a weak Cavs team in 07, which they who they would have destroyed as well. So, so yeah, if they had been able, of course, they still had to win Game Six and Seven to win the series. But you know, mm-hmm. certainly, certainly was conceivable. I think both those were home it, games. It, so, yeah, it was. A, it, it felt like a demoralizing thing. It was kind of one of those turn the table things. I mean, obviously, they still had their opportunities, but yeah, it, it sort of. It hurt a lot, and I, I remember that was a a big topic around NBA circles at that point because that was still in sort of the midst of a lot of you know the NBA is rigged and blah 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 and like I don't know I I don't believe that at all, but I believe that there was some some issues with how that sort of everything went down. Well, there. I, yeah, I mean that that was it's it's a dumb rule, obviously. That, that they yeah, just right. happened to step off the bench, and you know I I get you know getting involved if they got involved in the fight, sure, but um it's just like an unnecessarily strict rule and. Mm-hmm. You know, was, um, you know, it was just silly. Um, yeah, but I don't think if the NBA was going to um, was going to try to rig it, I don't not think they would have rigged it for the Spurs. That's I always, I always bring that up when people people are always like, oh, they rig it. And I'm like, it's usually in favor of the Spurs when you say that or like other like slower, less exciting teams. So I really don't think yeah. like I get it when people want to say, oh, they rigged it for like Los Angeles over Sacramento. OK, whatever, because Los Angeles is a bigger media market. But there's nothing that's more appealing about San Antonio than Phoenix Suns in, in this year. I mean, the, the, the market isn't any different. The, it's just yeah, it's it's ridiculous. It's it's yes, the exciting, fun team or the boring, you know, like because and then people are all oh, the, the Spurs are boring. I was like, well, yes, you're just like the same people are telling me the Spurs are boring. I'm like, well, then why would they? It's just, you know. People, people, people are silly. <laughs> uh, shaking, your, I'm, I'm shaking my fist right. I did, I it's, did too. Yeah, I don't know. You you saw it. Yeah, I don't know. Yay! I'm sure you saw me doing it, even I, though we're not on video. But right. you know. I, I could, I could hear it over the. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. We, we have good, we have good uh, headsets. So You're right. <laughs> um. So 2007, uh, 2008, they, uh, this was the year they traded for Shaq in the middle of the year after the Lakers had traded for Gasol. They. Finished 55 and 27, still good, but not quite as good. Um, and um, Shaq obviously kind of just changes the way they play because, uh, you know, he is, even though he's older, still still the focus, still in the middle and um, changing their spacing. They, I mean, they maintained a great offense despite, you know, uh, losing Mary and having Shaq. Um, but their, their pace slowed to fourth in the league, and that was with, Shaq coming pretty late in the season. Um, he only played uh, 28 games for them. So mm-hmm. I don't know if they they may have been slow already. They also had added Grant Hill that year. Um, so uh, uh, Brian Skinner as well, you know, important. <laughs> and uh, it's, it's always funny to be like the weird random guys. They're like, oh, yeah, he was on that team too. Yeah, right. Yeah, he, yeah. They, they, they you don't remember that. the Brian Skinner Phoenix Suns? I surprisingly do not, you know. Oh, uh, okay. Well, yeah. uh, and they ended up falling to the Spurs in the first round, four games to one. There was the famous Tim Duggan three-pointer in game one that, uh, <laughs> you know, that's what supposedly, I, I guess it was like I turned around the series even though like it was game one. I mean, um, but um, so, yeah, it's, it's disappointment, kind of a turning point in the seven seconds or less thing because they, they you know, um, especially with the next year, 08, 09, Terry, uh, D'Antoni leaves. They have Terry Porter as their coach and just kind of 
sort of changes the way they try. They try to be like more of a traditional team, and they realize, you know, most of the way through this, you know, at twenty and twenty three, Terry Porter's fired, and they have Alvin Gentry come in for the rest of the season, and they go like immediately to back to kind of the seven seconds or less thing, and um, Steve Nash is immediately more effective, and they miss the playoffs, but they're forty six and thirty six, so they're you know. Um, they're at least closer to, you know, I mean, 46 is going to get you in the playoffs most seasons, even mm-hmm. out West. So uh, they added Matt Barnes and Jason Richardson that year. Um, Dial only played 22 games, so that obviously hurt them as well. Um, and I think he was kind of toward the end of his effectiveness, you know. I, I, it was it was the beginning of Fat Dial. Yes, right, so. before he, you know, reinvented himself in San Antonio. But um, they had Robin Lopez as a rookie, but he didn't do much for them. So... And then um, they do get a bounce back year in uh, 2010 season, um, 54 and 28. They uh, make the Western Conference Finals uh, to against the Lakers. They actually sweep the Spurs in the second round, um, and uh, that's Game Four is sort of the famous swollen eye shot game where mm-hmm. you know he takes another hit to the Spurs and gets bloodied up. And actually, has a miss most of the third quarter. I think he got 14 stitches or something. Something, something like that, yeah. yeah, and then ends up coming in and uh, and taking over or playing well, maybe not taking over, but but you know making several shots in the four in the fourth and basically sealing it with a three pointer, um, you know, with one eye swollen shut. So uh, you know, that was a year where they added Channing Fry, Jared Dudley, and uh, and Goran Dragic, yep. you know, and uh, you know um, even and in. They made the Lakers nervous in the Western Conference Finals, uh, but then, of course, they have the Kobe air ball that uh, our test is the perfect <laughs> place to rebound and uh, t- uh, t- 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 it and, and, you know, uh, prevents it from going to a game seven. Uh, and then that's, you know, that is pretty much the end for the Suns as a relevant team. Uh Nash is there for a couple more seasons, but they're not really, you know, they, they make a big trade with Orlando to, um, I, I guess they, what, what did they end up getting? Uh, I'm trying to remember. Vince Carter. Yeah. They, did they get Vince Carter and Turgaloo in that trade? Uh, I believe. Or were those separate trades? I'm trying to remember how. I think they were separate. Tra- you know what? No. Well, no. Cause I mean, I don't know where this, cause they, they both came. I mean, obviously they both came from Orlando. Let me, um, let me see here real quick just to ensure – yeah, no, okay. So it, it was um, uh, the Gortat and uh, Pietris for Earl Clark, Jason Richards, and Hito Turkoglu. So yeah, okay. Okay, so they had Turkoglu first, yeah. and then they traded him for – and they traded him for – he was involved in the car trade. Or they yes, yes, got yeah. him back. Okay, gotcha. That, that's right. So, I mean, they just have – I mean, they had – 19 guys play for them that year, which, you know, um, and, uh, you know, a lot of guys who had, who played you know, a decent number of minutes for them. So including Zabian Dodd, Dodwell. Yeah. I don't know who that <laughs> I do is, not so. remember him, but he played 24 games, uh, <laughs> and 12 minutes per game for them. So a little young Aaron Brooks on this team as well. Yeah. Who yeah. is Zabian? <laughs> yeah, never I don't remember him. Uh, and I even remember Ghani Lowell, but I don't remember, yeah, remember Zabian. They signed Hakeem Ward. Well, they lost Amari, of course, after 2010, which, you know, was, right. of course, the, the big loss. And they, they signed, signed Hakeem Warwick and, yeah, that'll make and Josh Chodras, who, and Josh Chodras at the, at the time seemed like a good signing, but. Uh, that was him coming back from, uh, from Greece. 
Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, but he was a huge bust for them, and they were a team clearly in transition. The next year, they were 33 and 33, basically the same story, just, you know, were kind of wasting Nash's. I mean, you know, I mean, they were still like, they were not a terrible team. I mean, they were a decent team, but they were not like, you know, a relevant team anymore, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, Nash was doing his best to keep them afloat, but it just wasn't really working out so well. So, they decide, okay, it's time to end the Nash era, and then we get the famous uh, trade to L.A. If I, and I, I, it's hard to believe this in retrospect, but the Suns got two first and two second round picks out of it, which is you know pretty amazing haul for. I mean, obviously Nash being a French yeah. player, but you know just how it turned out in L.A. Um, didn't work out. And I, I thought Paul, Paul Flannery had a pretty good at SB Nation had a pretty good summary of just like. Refer to him as a cover band version of a player that he was in Phoenix and Dallas. He could still shoot and could still pass, but he was part of an ensemble that never clicked or made much sense in the abstract. And, you know, we talked about this. I don't know if there's anything else we can add to this in the that we didn't talk about in the roundtable, but just, you know, obviously the issues with Dwight, the fit with Kobe, you know, fitting with Kobe, uh, Mike Brown being the coach and trying to install that Princeton offense. I remember that Grantland series where Nash just says, like, you know, none of us do this offense, you know, and right. and Brown was gung-ho about it. I know at first Kobe was gung-ho about the idea, but it's required so much running for old players and just and, – and Dwight, who's hurt, you know, that it just obviously didn't work. And he – you know, Nash hurt himself in the second season of the game, I think, bumping into Damian Lillard and got a fracture in his leg and it just, you know, caused his body to, you know, finally – you just – not be able to play anymore and he, and he came back and played 50 games and was still effective but you know it just uh you know once Kobe was injured late in the season they made it to the playoffs but you know they had no chance of doing anything yeah I, I'm actually I, I was looking real quick at, at those draft picks that you were talking about the, the big haul of draft picks they got uh one of them is still sort of floating out there that might actually be a pretty important one uh, in yeah. the future is that that, uh, that it's, it's a 2015 first rounder it's protected selections one through five in 2015 uh, one through three, 2016. One through three in 2017. Then becomes completely unprotected, uh, 2018. So that'll be uh, interesting to follow as the the Lakers are not going to be very good yeah, <laughs> for the next few years. To, yeah, so. I mean they're going to have to be good. I mean, uh, you know, because they, I mean, they might be good enough to, or they might be, you know, they, I guess they'd be bad enough top five. I mean, they definitely could be a top five. You know, uh, yeah. Uh, this year, so I mean, yeah, uh, but I, I don't. Number six I don't think they're free, not free number be good six this year, and I don't think they're going to be good next year. So, no, so uh, you know, yeah, that'll be interesting. But yeah, it'll be fun to see. Yeah, uh, that that pick might might pay big dividends later. And then obviously but. his last season, he only played 15 games, basically struck. You know, had a couple of moments where he kind of looked like his old self. But and the Lakers were, you know, pretty much a disaster. Kobe mm-hmm. didn't play for hardly any of the season. And, um, you know, the most famous thing he did that season was the Grantland video series documenting, you know, how hard he was working in his comeback and, you know, just the, sort of the struggles that he was having of wanting to still play and contribute and feeling like a, you know, basically like he was a, just a contract. Right. Yeah, you could see the fun was kind of, and especially the way he played too. The fun of it was sort of gone for him in, in a lot of ways. It, you could, he just looked miserable playing. It just, and you could tell he still was trying at some point, but it just, it, it wasn't, it, it wasn't the old, and it, it's almost symbolic too because you know he he cuts his hair, and it's just like it's it's such a weird sort of national Lakers uniform. It's just like it's icky and weird, and it doesn't really ever fit. Like like you said, the cover band version, like like, like that, that. I think that's a perfect way to put it because it's just. It, it, I like to think of it as not the same Steve Nash because it's just so it's it's so disheartening because it's just 
yeah. It's just weird. I don't like it. I I just hate that era of Steve Nash. Not 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 for any reason of him. It's just everything. It's just a terrible way to end it now, especially now what we know and and and, and him being hurt this year. And you just really wish he had had you know another better run, you know, with another team maybe. But yeah, absolutely. Alas. <laughs> well, I uh, I know you have some you know some of the numbers that um stand out for uh, Nash. Do you kind of want to go through some of the yeah, well, so, some of those highlights? Yeah, let's let's run through a few here. Uh, number three on the all-time assist list, and, and we'll get I'll get to some play index ones to sort of show that as well. But I mean that's 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 significant. Number three on the all-time uh, assist list. Uh, you can make a real case as one of the best free throw shooters ever. I think from a percentage wise, I think he might be second or like tied for second all time or some ridiculous. I mean, he's at 90.4. I mean, this is absolutely ridiculous. And in terms of guys that took a lot of free throw shots, I mean, he is far and away of the guys that had over a thousand free throws. I mean, he, he's light years ahead of, of anybody, even, even Rick Barry. Uh, I don't know. I know Rick Barry won't uh, probably want to admit that, but he is indeed higher than Rick Barry. Not, not by much. That's, that's by percentages, but you know, Rick Barry will probably come up with something for that. Uh, uh, through 18 seasons, he shot 49% from the field, uh, 42.8% from deep, and then 90.94% or 90.4%, as I mentioned, from the free throw line. Uh, career true shooting percentage of 0. .605. So just an unbelievably, uh, you know, and, and Brian mentioned that in our roundtable as well, a guy that doesn't get credit. We, we sort of talk about his passing and his control and all that sort of stuff, but the guy was just an unbelievable shooter and just a super efficient shooter from a ton of different places on the floor as well. We had a, a Hal Brown article that's out right now on um, uh, the nylon calculus. That's really good. That shows sort of his shot charts and it's, it's, they're not from efficient places on the court. You would not, it's not just threes and, and, and layups. There's a lot of mid range jumpers, a lot of weird. He was really good at those sort of like weird, like jumpers from the block that were like fadeaways. And it didn't make any sense that a six, three guy was taking like a fadeaway from that close to the basket and having it still go in and still be a good shot. But yeah, he, uh, great at those. Um, a few other things here. He's one of uh, seven players in NBA history to win consecutive MVPs. As we know, he's one of six players to shoot 50% from the floor, 40% from three, and 90% from the line in a single season. Uh, and he's the only uh, ever player to do it for four uh, seasons as well. So that's very significant as well. Uh, missed only 41 games total over an 11-year span, which is just awesome. And, and what, what's so f- you know annoying then about how the fact that how his career ended is he was just a such a reliable guy for so long and now it's just sort of ending this way uh nine straight seasons of running the number one offense in the league uh, a few other things here he's one of four players ever to have uh over 17,000 points and 10,000 assists so it's a combined sort sort of points and assists uh the only other three um are uh, Magic Johnson, Jason Kidd, and John Stockton. So that's good company to keep for sure. Uh, he's only one of five people with over a thousand or ten thousand assists, rather. Uh, Mark Jackson, Jason Kidd, Magic Stockton are the others. So just Mark Jackson jumps into there, and then uh, sixty-one all-time seasons in, in NBA history that had over eight hundred assists. Uh, Steve Nash comes in third. Uh, Stockton had ten of them. Uh, Magic had nine. Uh, Nash had third. Uh, it was third with six. Uh, just to put it in context, well, Oscar Robertson only had five of those. So. Definitely an incredible just career overall. Uh, a few more things here real, real quick. Uh, second lowest turnover percentage am- amongst guys with, with an assist percentage over 40%. Um, only Magic Johnson w- was better at having you know, less turnovers and more assist percentage. So just an amazing company to keep f- for Steve Nash. I mean, really, you know, we, we don't even have to have a conversation about a Hall of Fame. I think he's a no-brainer. 
and I think, you know, I won't call him the best point guard of all time. I don't, I don't think he's quite there because there's still, you know, the, the guys we mentioned, the Stockton's a magic, you know, even a Jason Kidd has a right. But as far as a guy from that era, I mean, just, just an unbelievable talent from the era, just, just an all-time great NBA player. Yeah, and, you know, obviously, I mean, I think the big deficiency for him was defense. Yeah. That's kind of what maybe keeps him from being in the conversation with Stockton or Magic or, you know, um, Oscar Robertson, you know, perhaps, but I mean, he's right. He's very, he's very close to that level, I think, but not quite there because of the defense. But I mean, I I think the defense for him was more of just like, like the effort was there and like the positioning was there. And it was, I I don't think he was necessarily like a terrible defender. He was just overmatched on that end of the floor. Mm -hmm. Uh, And there may have been also some where, you know, you're, because he has to do so much on offense, you're, you know, you're, you're doing less on defense, you know, maybe some of that, but I don't see like, you know, I, I, I never felt like, oh, he's loafing on defense or he's not doing anything. It's more just like, okay, you know, he, because he lacks, um, you know, I mean, he was athletic in, in certain ways, but he did lack, you know, um, length. He, la- you know, he was, uh, you know, I mean, he was, he w- wasn't a, a shrimp as a point guard, but he wasn't a tall point guard. Um, he was elusive, but not particularly quick and he couldn't jump. So, uh, you know, relative to an NBA player, of course. So, you know, the, uh, there is that, but I, I do feel like um, maybe his defense, like I think, you know, we mentioned in the um, discussion, maybe his defense, it, it's certainly a negative, but I don't think it's like this huge negative that puts him like that, that means like he's not as great as people think he is. Cause I think, yeah, he, and, he and that helped that Yeah. Yeah, I think the Hell Brown article did a good job as well of breaking it down. That okay, look here, let, let's let's take all of his value for his defense and really put it. It over. Still, it didn't matter even with quote unquote bad defense. His overall value was still you know top five in the league. So absolutely. So yeah, there. I mean, he any any sort of defi- any sort of deficiency on defense, he more than made up with just incredible offense and incredible sort of control of the team and the control of, of of his team's offense as well. So yeah, I mean that. He, they're not everybody can be LeBron James or you know Michael Jordan or these you know unbelievable you know some guys these guys are mortals some guys are just going to have something they're just not great at and that was that was defense was his but it, it didn't matter I mean it didn't uh, it didn't drive him down enough I think that we should really I think it gets it, it gets muddied up a little too much and that, that's the Dan Tony thing too I think it's lazy where people just consider those teams that didn't play defense because they gave up a lot of points which ignores the fact that they were also. You know, the possessions were way more in that game as well. So it's just it's just not fair in a lot of ways. But, yeah, I, I don't think it was enough to make him not an all time great. Yeah, um, definitely. So. Um, so, yeah. Is anything else uh, come to mind when it comes to uh, Steve Nash or should we uh, we should wrap it up for our. No, listeners? I mean, there's not much. I think we've done a, a good job. I think the roundtable is a good discussion as well about him. I think he's just the guy that that I'll reiterate from, you know, the, the previous podcast. He's just a guy that for me in a lot of ways made the NBA fun again and made me a, a, a better fan. And, and, you know, I mentioned that, that it was Dirk and that that Mavericks team that really turned me into a super fan. But I think that Dirk wouldn't have happened really as, as well as it did without a Steve Nash. So I always sort of attribute him as well. And, and, and Dirk is, you know, my favorite NBA player of all time and a guy that, you know, I'm, I'm making plans now to go see him in Chicago again. And every time he comes to Chicago, I try to go see him and, and there's a bunch of stuff and, you know, I met him multiple times and that sort of stuff. And, and I think a lot of that, I, I have to give credit to Steve Nash for sort of getting, you know, getting Dirk comfortable, getting him acclimated and, and, and just overall just making basketball fun for me and making it just so many 
memories of watching him. You know, we were watching videos in anticipation and research of this and sort of watching those old clips of him just operating an offense. It was just like, ah, yes. Like, that's just what I remember from my youth. And, and, and you never really get that back a lot of ways where, you know, now I'm a jaded fan and I do this, you know, you know, regularly or, you know, I'll write or do all that. So I, I look at the game differently. But, yeah, he was he was one of the last few guys where I was just a true fan, uh, you know, of what he did. So yeah. just really enjoyed Steve Nash overall. Cool. Well, all right. Well, thanks, everyone, for uh, checking us out. Uh, of course, we're at the podiumgame.com, which is uh, part of the Hardwood Paroxysm Basketball Network. You can subscribe to the Hardwood Paroxysm uh, feed on iTunes, which we are a part of, along with uh, several other great podcasts, including hosted including by our uh, guests before. And uh, you can find us on Twitter at Over and Back NBA. We're also at Over and Back NBA on Facebook, and Over and Back NBA.tumblr.com is a website where you can find links to our shows and other things as well, a few other things as well. So, uh, thanks so much for listening. We uh, greatly appreciate it. My voice is about to uh, go, so I am <laughs> going to say goodbye, but uh, come back and, uh, you know. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm, uh, you're done. So right, you're, you're, there we go. Give, drink your orange Goodbye, juice. Goodbye, everyone. Drink your orange juice. I come home every night and I hug you. you the only woman I ever run to. You come through. She always come through. Because I love you and I love you. I come home every night and I hug you. you the only woman I ever run to. You come through. She always come through. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.